This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today with me is David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center, and we are very happy to talk to you today about addiction in the news, specifically alcohol. It's been very interesting over the last few weeks. A lot of new studies have come out around alcoholism and um, uh, new information about the role of alcohol in all uh, patient populations, in children, in adults, in women, all kinds of things have been looked at. So we thought we would share a little bit of this new information with you because, after all, really our most uh, problematic substance in the United States besides tobacco is alcohol. And we often are focused on other kinds of medications or drugs, and we don't always pay attention to how significant alcohol is. So welcome, David, and thanks for being here. Thank you. I am very glad to be here. I think this is a great topic. Um, we, when we talk about all the other drugs, when we spend all this time talking about opiates, about marijuana, about all of those other things in the recovery process, what we regularly see is that alcohol is the is the lead-in to relapsing on all of those other substances. Um, so, putting putting an emphasis on on the current research with alcohol, I think, is is perfect. And we're entering into the summer season, which is often a time that family and friends are getting together, and there's the. Uh, vacations to the beach or the mountains, to the lakes, and very often alcohol is a part of it. People seem to often give themselves permission to have alcohol and to consume it in larger amounts when they're on vacation or during holiday periods than other times of the year. It's very interesting. Even people that don't generally drink regularly or even very often or large amounts will find that on vacation they consume more. Yeah, we often talk about that when it comes to holidays. But holidays are times that when people, people who don't drink still get drunk. Um, weddings, New Year's, Memorial Day coming up, even people who don't drink will find themselves drinking and then over-drinking on that day. So it's, um, it's very timely. I think that uh, one of the articles that was really interesting to me, of course the fact that I'm a woman has nothing to do with that, but this is a study that came out of Massachusetts General Hospital and, and Boston University School of Medicine. This is one of the very first studies to look at the differences in the brains of women who have alcoholism versus the brains of men. There have been lots of imaging studies done over the years looking at the various structures in the brain that we know that are related to the disease of addiction. Ironically, most all of these studies have been done primarily on men. And that's, that's a big problem in general for medicine 
the fact that most of the research has been done on men and not on women, making the basic assumption that men and women are exactly the same. Unfortunately, that is not true. And unfortunately, um, we are finding more and more there are differences regarding um, women, not only how they respond to medications, but in this case, there's actually a difference in the brains of, of women, and in particular, their reward system. So the reward system plays heavily in the initial development of the disease of addiction. So women who, um, who have a larger reward system area of their brain have been um, shown to have more difficulty with alcohol. It's interesting, women who are alcoholics tend to have a larger um, reward center in their brain than do women who are not alcoholics. Now, when they compared this study with previous studies that have been done on men, what they found was that men who are alcoholics actually have a smaller reward center than do non-alcoholic men. So it's just the opposite for women, and it speaks to one of the things that we've known for a long time is that really there's a need for gender-separate kind of treatment that when we look at the uh, reward center for women, we also notice there's an, um, a larger amygdala and hippocampus, our memory and our burglar alarm system, in women who have um, alcoholism. And this corresponds with one of the things that we know very well, which is women tend to have more difficulty with anxiety and that unfortunate, unpleasant circumstances um, when they are depressed or lonely or sad, that's a time that they're more likely to drink and more likely to relapse to drinking. For men, they actually, um, in general and not specifically, but in general, men tend to, at least in the beginning, drink to make a good situation a better situation. They have a smaller burglar alarm system, and they have a smaller memory system in terms of remembering unpleasant memories. So men are not as likely to be tripped up by being depressed or sad or lonely. They're more likely to be tripped up by people, places, and things the buddies who want them to go to the football game or the folks at the country club after um, playing golf or their friends um, that invite them over for dinner or want them to stop off at a bar after, after work. That's a more likely relapse scenario for a man than it is for a woman. Not that they can't both relapse in, uh, in either of those settings, but I just found that very interesting that now we have... Um, evidence out of Mass General that this is actually structurally different and uh, important when we think about how we need to treat folks. So the, the aspect of, of recognizing that, that men drink and use for different reasons than women is, is in and of itself pretty recent and has been um, incredibly helpful 
in the the treatment planning and and relapse prevention work that you do with with each of the genders um, and and helping men really come to terms with having to change the places that they hang out and having to change the people that they hang out with Um, um, and for women having really focusing on on coping skills and stress management Mm -hmm. Um, not that both of those things are important for both genders right but emphasizing that for males this is a, a much bigger factor um, um, in terms of t- being around people who are drinking and having a good time, you're much more likely to to want to participate in that and join them than a woman who's having some anxiety about the situation and feeling like um, they need to be making arrangements for who's going to drive and, and other other aspects that that her anxiety kicks in. I think it really highlights also though that there needs to be um, so much more study in the genders. In all the studies that we look at today, several of them are rat studies. Right. And in the rat studies, it's still real often um, male rats that are being studied. And, and, right. You know, we do learn a lot from male rats, but it's not the same. It is not the same. And I understand from a research po- point of view, first of all, you don't want to be involving childbearing women in research because if they were to get pregnant, now you have a baby that may be uh, potentially exposed to a drug or a treatment that might not be good for the baby. Also, women's menstrual cycles vary throughout the, um, the month, and we know that especially in addiction, during certain parts of the um, month, women are much more likely to have uh, higher cravings. And if they decide um, to try and have a detox uh, during that particular uh, part of their menstrual cycle, they are much more likely to then have more difficulty, more symptoms, and a harder time getting into recovery. So uh, very interesting. So I understand why they don't do it. It's just unfortunate that they don't because we, we really need to know why some of our treatments are not nearly as effective for women as they are for men. So now that they have started doing that, um, an interesting study that I I'm, I'm, was looking at earlier today, looking at um, moderate exposure to alcohol um, when women are pregnant, impacts um, the, or increases the risk of alcoholism up to the third generation. And, you know, originally reading that, you think, well, how do they study that? And, and this is looking at, at the rat population. Um, exposure on day, day 18, 19, and 20 or, or something like that, similar to the second trimester in a, in a human experience, um, just a little bit of exposure was shown to increase an alcohol preference and tolerance um, in rats two generations down the road. And that is really amazing. We know that there are certain um, problems that in, in the physical uh, development of a child exposed to alcohol in utero. We know that it can change the size and shape of the brain, 
certainly with fetal alcohol syndrome, we know that it literally changes the way their faces look. Uh, they're often referred to as pixies. They have um, a very short distance between the bottom of their nose and the top of their lip. They have a broader face but a shorter face. Their nose is shorter, and it's more up, often to be upturned, and their eyes are more um, widely spaced apart. So there's a very distinctive thing that happens physiologically and developmentally to the babies when they're exposed to alcohol, and this often results in mental retardation and other physical problems. But this idea that it also changes their experience, not just in their generation, but in the next two generations in terms of their preference for alcohol. And, and their tolerance for alcohol. That was so, because it's not a surprise looking at fetal alcohol syndrome and, and the, the impact of, of drinking physically and, and cognitive functioning, um, but that tends to be where the conversation has, has stopped. Right. Um, and looking at where the, the drive and looking at the preference to, to consume alcohol and to be able to consume greater amounts of it is, is a whole new area of looking at it. And a very important one that we need to continue to focus on. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to also talk about alcohol marketing specifically to children, a new study that was um, revealed at the American Academy of Pediatrics. Please stay tuned. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. 
So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today, David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center and I have been talking about alcohol in the news. Again, remembering that we are entering another big season of more high-intensity alcohol use as we start our summer vacations and as there's graduations and holidays coming up. And one of the things that we know that happens very regularly is that there's a change in the movies that start to come out over the summertime. In the, during the summertime, when kids are off in home and harried moms and dads are looking for ways to entertain their little darlings, one of the things that they do is often take them to the movies. So during the summertime, there's a, uh, usually a group of movies that are released specifically for kids that they can enjoy and um, or that parents can sometimes even tolerate. So um, this study that was presented by the, at the American Academy of Pediatrics meeting in San Francisco in 2017, I think, is a real surprising study in that um, alcohol brand placements in popular movies of all rating types, not just for adults and not just for teens, but for children as well, these uh, placements of these alcohol-specific, um, <laughs> you can't call them advertisements because they're not advertisements, but they are certainly strategically placed throughout the movie, um, that has nearly doubled during the past two decades. And this is really surprising um, and somewhat discouraging because we know the strong effect of advertising to children in terms of its effect on their use of tobacco. And um, as alcohol has um, been restricted in terms of their ability to market and advertise, this is a new way that they're doing it by having the characters in the movies. Well, and it's interesting because they, they have really been able to show that when the the popular character and the lead character and the one that's that's viewed as the hero is using a particular brand, that that brand of alcohol sales um, increase, and that that brand becomes um, the preference of teenagers when they get to the age of being able to buy. So the the studies actually showed that the top three brands. Um, that, that Americans are drinking are also the top three brands that they're finding in movies that are geared um, um, towards children. Um, not that the children in the movies are drinking, but that the, the parents or, and the adult figures in the movies are showing that brand. Um, it's really very surprising because alcohol use was portrayed in 87% of all movies. 
um, over 1,700 movies were evaluated. And in these 1,700 movies, 87% showed alcohol being portrayed. And these specific brands showed up in 44%. So rather than someone sitting at a bar um, drinking um, a glass of wine or, or having a mixed drink, uh, 44% of the time it was a specific brand that you could see the name on the bottle and that, or that it was referenced in the, um, in the actual movie. Well, and, and, you know, it really does actually put a lot of focus on children. It had 85% show drinking in movies that were rated for children, so G and PG rated movies. Um, and of that 85%, 41% actually were showing the brand. So it really is strongly linking the, the perception that kid, kids have of, of what's cool and what's adult behavior and what is the proper brand that you need to be drinking if you're going to be a cool adult. It's, um, that, that is really disturbing to me, and I'm trying to think back on some of the, the movies that I've seen recently. And certainly, you know, you see the, the dad in the backyard barbecuing, and he's having a beer, and, of course, how he picks up that beer and puts it down is very important because the label is not covered. It is a very clear in the shot, sometimes for the whole scene. And so it's not just this quick, brief um, exposure. It, it, it often is left throughout um, a major scene of the movie, and that's very disturbing because kids know these things. And many of these studies have been done showing logos to children three and four years old, logos of um, children's preferenced um, eating establishments or different types of food or different types of drinks and they'll show the symbol and the child can't read but they'll see the symbol and they will be able to tell you oh that's coca-cola or oh that's um kentucky fried chicken or oh that's mcdonald's they know very specifically the brand's just by looking at the logos. And this isn't because someone sat down with a book and showed them and had them repeat and point. They see it in the commercials, they see it in the magazines, and they see it in the movies. And it's very, it's a very powerful, yet subtle, no one's calling the alcohol um, distributors or manufacturers out on advertising to children. Oh, heavens no. But this product placement is a big deal, and it does have a big effect. Well, in this study, the, in the presentation of it, they did bring up that perhaps the idea that the alcohol industry is doing their own self-regulation isn't quite working. So they are beginning to look at maybe we need to address this more directly. Um, I recall back in the, the days of the tobacco wars when, when the cowboy for Marlboro and the camel for the Joe Cool camel was out there, and, and the same stories were going around, that kids were able to recognize these symbols and whether or not they ever um, um, put it together, they were getting so so associated to these symbols and, and that that would lead to the brands that they would smoke once they were of age to start doing that. And, you know, in, in England and in, in many countries that they're really taking it serious, 
smoking is being sold in completely non-branded, um, non-labeled manner in, in plain wrapping that doesn't have any sort of branding connected to it to take away any sort of appeal, visual appeal, in connecting. And, and it's moving that way towards alcohol as well. And I think that's a good thing because one of the one of the things that the tobacco companies learned e- early on is that most people that end up being lifelong or at least long-term smokers have already picked the brand that they are going to smoke for the rest of their life before the age of 18. So well before it's legal for them to smoke, they have already chosen the brand, and they stay loyal. And I don't know that that's necessarily something that they would experience with wine and liquor, but it's definitely something that would be experienced in, in the beer um, consumption. Another part of, of this whole marketing of alcohol that's been so interesting for me is how, how it's become so much more pervasive throughout aspects of life that you just would not see it um, in the past. Um, I can think of movies where um, women's groups a women's Bible study group will be sitting around and one of them will say, let's have some wine, and they'll, they'll begin drinking wine. And, and, and I know growing up that that was not an area that you ever thought that you would see people drinking wine. So this, this other study that we looked at was looking at the double-edged sword of religion and alcoholism. Um, and it, it does highlight that still in religious communities, people who are involved in a religion or connected to a religion are less likely to abuse alcohol, that there is a bit of a protective factor with that, um, that they may still drink, but they're less likely to cross into um, what would be diagnosed as abuse disorder. Um, But what it also shows is that when it does cross over, they're also much less likely to get help for it because of the the shame of, of having the disease of addiction and because of the silence that comes around talking about it. And this is certainly something that we've seen at the Atlanta Healing Center um, on a pretty regular basis. When somebody is admitted and they have a religious background, um, they've been affiliated with a a church community for a long time, they have a very difficult struggle um, acknowledging the the first step that this, this is a disease that they need um, outside assistance for, acknowledging that they can recover, and, and so often they really struggle because they should not have this problem. Um, and, and there's, even for the family members, a real fear that if they talk about it, they'll um, be shunned. And what this study was showing was that these people, um, even in recovery, do become more isolated from the, the religious community that they had been a part of. And this is really tragic. When we talk about the um, basis for recovery and when we look at addiction as a biopsychosocial spiritual disease, we know that spirituality, which may or may not have anything to do with organized religion, but that spirituality is an important factor in people being able to find hope and strength and the ability to do the difficult things they have to do to get sober. So if they have been a member of a religious uh, community, particularly one that is um, intolerant or prohibits the use of alcohol at all, 
one of the comments that I've heard folks make is, well, I've already sinned. Just by drinking alcohol, I've crossed the line, so I might as well go for it because there's not going to be any coming back for me because I've already done the thing I was told not to do. And that often they struggle with accepting the whole idea of this as a disease because it's so strongly woven into their uh, religious doctrine that this is a moral failing if they are not able to obey the tenets of the religion to not drink. So there's a real message that if they were actually active in their, their religion and they had, had adequate faith, they would not have this problem. Um, but what's, what's I find interesting, especially with the clients that we've had, is that um, they're, they're coming to terms, they're, they're facing alcohol in places that they just never did before. And, and, you know, it used to be a protective thing, and I guess it still is for a lot of people, but it's not as safe as it used to be. That it is becoming much, much more socially access- acceptable to go to Bible study and then go have wine or go have drinks afterwards. So it, it continues to be, as um, this article said, a double-edged sword. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a popular weight loss surgery that actually puts people at high risk for developing alcohol problems. So please stay tuned, and thank you so much for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare. And learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. 
Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today, David Donaldson and I have been discussing alcohol and alcoholism in the news and looking at some very interesting studies that have come out in the last few weeks um, as they relate to alcohol and alcoholism. We've talked um, a bit about um, different um, aspects of alcoholism, but one that I think has been um, interesting to me, and this is something that many of us who work in the addiction world have been really familiar with, but finally, the University of Pittsburgh School of Health Sciences looked at a group of patients who had had weight loss uh, surgery. So there's a couple of different ways that weight loss surgery is, um, is performed. The original surgeries were called RUIN-Y, and this was where part of the stomach was actually um, either cut out or stapled off, and that the main part of the stomach was bypassed and it um, allowed only a very small portion of the stomach to be available. So inherent in that is as you would eat or drink things that would fill your stomach up much more quickly and you would have a sense of being full and the hormones from your stomach would get to your brain and tell you you were full. And in doing that, you were consuming much fewer calories and thereby losing weight. So they compared this uh, classic, excuse me, Ruin Y, with uh, something called gastric banding, which has become more popular in recent years, and looking at the development of alcoholism. And uh, after looking at more than 2,000 patients, they found that, indeed, a high number of patients with both of these procedures but particularly the RU and Y, would, would go on to develop alcoholism. What was, what was really interesting is that both of, the study, both of the procedures, people over a course of, I believe it was five years, would increase in their drinking. But the, the RU and Y procedure had a much higher incidence of that drinking moving on into substance use disorder. Um, and at the same time, it's, it's regaining popularity in terms of the, the surgery of choice because it has a much faster weight loss than the, the gastric banding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that really speaks to this whole addictive process. And so much of the addictive process is I want results now. I don't want to have to take time, even though the banding is, is also a pretty rapid process. The, um, the faster one is the ruin white, and that's the one that people are going towards. Um, and, and what the study was really emphasizing is that we can't just do pre-surgery, um, pre-surgery screening and warn them about the dangers afterwards, that we have to actually really be following these people following the surgery. Um, and the study, I believe, is suggesting up to seven years, right. um, but definitely up to five, um, because, because we know that the their risk of alcohol use disorder um, is, is really great. This study didn't really focus, but we've talked about it on other shows where, where their, their um, 
difficulty with emotional disorders and anxieties and even suicidality has increased in that two to three year period after surgery. So, so we can't just, you know, just have the surgery and send them on their way and wish them luck when we know that these problems are potentially out there. The, the study was as high as, as um, 20%, 28% of people who have that, that surgery will go on to develop um, substance use disorder. So that's a huge number. It is a very huge number. And we've, we've noticed this for a number of years. In fact, one treatment center that I worked at, we had eight to ten people at any given time in for treatment for alcoholism who had had that particular surgery. And we know a lot of patients in our current patient population have this issue. Now, there's a couple of things at play here, and one of the, um, one of the things is um, actually physiologic, particularly for men. Now, we've known for a long time that women, their stomachs do not contain uh, a very large number of a specific enzyme that begins the detoxification of alcohol. So the alcohol just sort of goes right through their stomach and gets absorbed in the small intestine and gets into their bloodstream. So women are going to have a higher blood alcohol level drinking less alcohol. Men have an abundance of this enzyme that begins to break down the alcohol, and so not all of it gets absorbed into the bloodstream as alcohol. So men traditionally have been able to, even if you... um, uh, normalize um, for body size and weight and all of that, men are able to consume more quantity of alcohol and have a lower blood level. But if you've now taken away a big portion of the surface area of the stomach, which you do, particularly with the Roux and Y, now that enzyme does not only not have time to work because the food goes more quickly through the system, but there's smaller surface area, and so there's fewer enzymatic action. So now men who have had the gastric bypass actually function a little bit more like women in terms of the alcohol gets absorbed at a much higher rate, and they will have a higher blood level of alcohol than they did before the surgery. And this creates for them this experience of getting more alcohol, getting higher, and if they have the disease of addiction, they are really at, at high risk. So, I, you know, physiologically, that's a very interesting thing that happens, and, and this study clearly shows that the folks that they see at risk for developing this kind of problem were um, men, um, particularly um, men who were um, more isolated, um, were younger, and had a lot um, less of a social support system. If they had a divorce or they had a mental health issue, this then greatly accelerated the possibility that they were going to be having alcohol use disorder. So, so it's. I mean, I'm glad that they're really putting some some effort and time behind in studying this. It's, it's an area that we've seen in the addiction field for quite some time, and there's been a lot of speculation as to the reasons behind it. One of them, you know, that, that they have a eating disorder, 
so they have something that's similar to a chemical dependency in the first place, and that eating disorder comes to a sudden halt when they have the surgery because they go from being able to eat as much as they need to to not only stop the cravings but fix the feelings and fix all the emotions to only being able to eat four ounces at a time, which does nothing except except aggravate and tease the whole situation. So these people um, not only are absorbing it faster, but they find themselves looking for, for new ways to, to manage the addiction was a lot of what the speculation was, um, because we would also see them moving, having problems with other kinds of addictions. We also saw gambling issues, and we saw sexual addiction issues that were coming mm-hmm. after all of this. And, and to my knowledge, there hasn't been a whole lot of study as to why these people get so out of control afterwards, um, and so it's good that they finally are really beginning to put some time in, into this. And you bring up an important point, um, David, and not all people who are obese have addiction. Not all people who have disordered eating have the disease of addiction, but many of them do. We know that sugar releases dopamine in the same area of the brain as cocaine and heroin and alcohol. So for at least a subset of the population of folks who have um, morbid obesity, one of the questions that should be asked, and I'm really happy that um, the Academy for Bariatric and Metabolic Surgery is now thinking along this way, is that they may have had addiction already, that the addiction was being um, their drug of choice or their drug of maximum dopamine release was actually sugar. And as that was taken away from them and minimized, they do what most people with addiction do, which is you learn to love the drug you're with and you learn to um, uh, find other ways of getting your dopamine released. And so they, um, they now switch or, uh, or we have um, this new experience of other other drugs, other behaviors that will also meet their need, and alcohol is a very easy one for them, and it doesn't take too much alcohol for them to really be off and running. So it's, um, it's really important for anyone who is considering this kind of surgery to think about uh, being screened, and certainly many of the doctors are implementing this. Um, I think it's probably a little short-sighted to screen only for alcohol, which is what they're recommending because, as we know, it's not about the drug. It's not about the behavior. It's about the brain disease of addiction. And so it needs to be wider than just a screening for alcohol, although that is a good place to start. So... Um, it is, um, it is really very important and something to be taken seriously because many of these people, after this very expensive surgery and then the very expensive adapting to a new life, having to do things like buy no, new shoes because your shoes no longer fit, uh, buying new jewelry or having your jewelry re-sized, um, 
buying regular new clothes, uh, doing a lot of things differently because of the weight loss, one of the things um, that they need to be very careful about is that they don't add on to that now a very expensive addiction treatment. And, in fact, it may be helpful for them if they were to screen positive for an addiction, to have the addiction treatment done then, they might be much more successful in being able to actually lose the weight that they need and um, be more successful in keeping the weight off because that's the other thing that we see very often with folks, particularly those that have had the gastric sleeve, is that after they have lost the weight, over a few years, they tend to figure out ways um, in which they can uh, continue to eat and actually raise their dopamine levels um, again and uh, raise their, their body weight. So lots more to be uh, revealed and lots more to consider. When we look at the epidemic of obesity in our country, we need to at least begin to think in part that this may be a sugar addiction. Wouldn't that be interesting? So we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about does moderate drinking really ward off heart disease and other questions in alcoholism in the news. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. 
Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. David Donaldson and I have been talking about alcoholism and alcohol addiction in the news because, ironically, there's been a lot of new studies that have been published in the last couple of weeks that pertain to um, alcohol. And one of them is um, this whole idea that we have been led to consider, which is that moderate drinking or having a glass of wine with dinner somehow is protective against heart disease. And when they look at countries that have wine as a regular part of their um, meals and a regular part of their um, daily consumption, uh, they've looked at some heart um, disease rates and have felt that there was protective, something protective about being a moderate drinker as opposed to being a non-drinker or a heavy drinker. Well, this new study uh, from the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs that was released um, actually uh, just uh, yesterday says that, hold on a minute, maybe this glass of wine with the dinner is not as protective as we may think because when you actually tease apart the data, and this is always the interesting thing about these kinds of studies, is looking at the subsets of the data. So what they have in the past, um, and they, they analyzed 45 cohort studies that um, reveals the central issue that a non-drinker, as listed in these studies, may in fact have been a previous heavy drinker and that their level of heart and other medical problems may have been higher and that may have been part of the impetus for them to actually cut back and stop drinking. So rather than the non-drinkers, which it's pretty rare, unfortunately, in this day and time to find someone who's been a non-drinker their whole life. That's a very, um, and a growing smaller number of individuals. But if you are now classified as a non-drinker, they're supposing that really when they do these kinds of interviews with the patients that they're finding that, no, they're former drinkers who had bad health problems, and so they stopped. So they had a problem with their heart. They had a problem with diabetes. They had a problem um, with uh, With their ability to control how much they drink. And a problem with how to control how much they drink. Yes, thank you, David. They had these problems, and because of that, um, that was part of their motivation for them to become abstinent, and hopefully they got into recovery and not just abstinent, but for them to become now classified as a non-drinker. So they had poorer health than the moderate drinkers. So it was not that alcohol was protective. In fact, alcohol was probably a major contributor to their previous poor health in the non-drinkers. Well, and it's interesting because it really talks about how these moderate drinkers may still be moderate drinkers because they haven't had other health issues mm-hmm. that would have mixed medications with the alcohol and, and that um, they were they were already fairly pretty healthy people 
Um, what's surprising to me about this, though, is that my assumption um, with with wine was that those original studies had come from the the nurses' study that followed that group of nurses over the course of their entire lives, from when they entered nursing school until they were, you know, a hundred. Um, and so, for this study now to be look saying that most of those studies did not look at their drinking history prior to age fifty five is kind of surprising. Um, And it really speaks to how often we hear a study and we think we know where it's being referenced from, and and it's it's very different than the truth. Right. And that the assumption is that that a non-drinker, a current non-drinker who hasn't had anything to drink in the last year, is not the same as a never-drinker. And um, the assumption has apparently been made in many or most of these 45 studies that they did a meta-analysis on, Um, the the fact that, no, um, a non-drinker does not equal never-drinker. And non-drinker probably, in many cases, is someone who stopped drinking because of health problems. So um, an interesting twist and one that I think is important. We should always (laughs) look at data somewhat skeptically, and we should always consider um, uh, the source of our data. But in this case, uh, we may need to rethink that idea that we are able to moderately drink and not have health problems because there's a new study that has come out that shows that alcohol, um, separate from tobacco, it actually is responsible for a number of cancers, major cancers that are killing people. So there, this um, idea that you can have a glass of wine or two and it's actually helping your health, probably not a fair assumption anymore. Uh, you may not be hurting your health, but you are not providing an additional health benefit in all actuality. But and the other part of it is that they they moved from what we would talk about as just just moderate drinking, which would be one to two drinks, three to four times a week, to daily drinking. Right. Um, and and they they made that switch without making any real comment about that but right. they're moving they're they're saying one glass of din- of wine with dinner each night um is protective when when in reality it's it's not really showing that not at all but where you live may certainly determine um how much you drink and what you drink so there were two um interesting studies uh, one that came out of the University of Washington that's looking at the um, uh, drinking in the U.S., and one that came out of the Norwegian University of Science and Technology that's looking at how much Europeans drink and what they drink and what is um, what is the differences. So... So it's interesting for me, the, in the, the one from the University of Washington, they stopped and looked at not just um, income level um, from the various places that, they, that uh, they studied, but also the level of disorganization, which they defined as um, 
areas that had the most crime, the most drug dealing, and um, and um, and the most graffiti. And it was really highlighting that the old idea that if you have a broken window and you fix it right away, you're less likely to have further vandalism than if you let a broken window stay there. So that the what the study was showing was that whether it's a health a wealthy community or a poor community, if they're if they're not taking care of um, the basic organization, they're going to have um, higher problems of of alcohol uh, use. And then of that group, the, the lower income as well as the disorganization was the highest. So it, it was highlighting that you can't just put your focus on fixing poverty to help be, bring people out of that situation, but you also have to bring organization into those areas. And that is, I think, really important. There, um, I was just at a meeting this morning where we were discussing the problems related to opioid um, uh, deaths, and it's real easy to get simplistic and say, well, doctors just stop writing scripts. Um, in this case, um, just help people not be poor. Um, but that's um, part of the problem, and that's part of the solution, but it's not the whole answer. And unfortunately, when we get too simplistic and we miss um, important things that also need to be taken care of, like shown in this study. Um, when we looked at Europe, this was an interesting study. They found that um, depending on where you live in Europe, it's going to determine what you are most likely to drink, and that many of the drinking preferences, as we just talked about with children's movies, unfortunately, many of the drinking preferences are actually culturally developed. So if you um, live in Eastern Europe, then your drug, um, your drug, your drink of choice, um, or drug of choice, uh, is vodka. Much more vodka consumed there. If you lived in Southern Europe, then you're probably going to be drinking more wine. And if you lived in Northern Europe, then you are often going to be drinking beer. So um, I think that was um, that was really very interesting. Part of what um, the the University of Norway did was look at at trying to figure out which area is drinking the most. And they were having such difficulty because of this regional drinking that they were trying to figure out, well, is it more vodka, is it more wine, is it more beer? And so they created, um, they, they took the, the standardization that we use in terms of ounces of, of liquor, and they, they made pictures, and they would show the pictures in order to get people to amount to their amount of drinking. And by doing that, they were able to determine that um, that Ireland drinks the most, but Belgium has the most binge drinking, followed by um, England with the second to the most binge drinking, um, which was interesting because I think we all kind of knew that Ireland drank the most anyway. Right. They, they, they win. They win. 
So um, the other thing that they determined was that um, more alcohol was consumed in the upper strata. So the more money you had, the more alcohol you consumed, and the more regularly you consumed it. And binge drinking was much more common in the lower social strata and um, uh, certainly... This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.